If you've got your Bibles open still to Psalm 119, uh, if not, go back to that passage. We're going to be looking at that uh, this morning, specifically verses 105 to 112, which we finished with uh, just a second ago. Thanks for being here. Uh, again, I said that we're going to finish the message tonight, so we'll go as far as I think we should this morning. Um, let me begin by reading a couple of things to you. Of course, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's all centered around the beauty and the blessing of the Word of God. And here we all sit with it on our laps this morning, some of you on your phones. You can look up all kinds of different passages and translations at a minute's notice. And we need the Word of God. It is the Word of God that gives us life. It is the Word of God that teaches us how to be right with Him. And so this is a great kind of celebration, Psalm 119, of the greatness of His Word. We're just going to look at, at one little section this morning. Quote, It is the reading of the Word of God that is the means that possesses our minds with the apprehension of God and His holy truth. So that, in this reading, our understanding is illuminated with a heavenly light. Our hearts are touched with a delightful relish of that truth. And we are secretly attracted to God. All the powers of our souls are excited and animated to a holy, obedient life. Richard Baxter, 1600s. Precious Bible, what a treasure, Charles Bridges. My favorite Puritan, Thomas Watson, writes this, quote, the scripture is both the breeder and the feeder of grace. How is the convert born except by the word of truth? And how does he grow but by the sincere milk of the word? The breeder and the feeder. I really like that. Uh, some of you have animals, been around animals. You understand what breeding animals is all about. You understand how that process comes about. We all understand. This isn't biology class, so we won't get too deep into that. But we all understand how life is procreated. It takes a seed. And it is the same with a person who comes to Christ. And the seed according to Scripture, is the Scripture itself. In other words, what creates new life in a person who was once spiritually dead and separated from God, the creation or the, the breeder of that life is the Word of God. James 1.18, you were born by the Word of Truth. Sounds a little fuzzy there. You want to pull that down just a little bit? We are, we are begotten by the Word of Truth. And then go back to the animal thing, once that animal has been birthed, now that animal must grow and, and feed on something. They, they feed on straw, hay, milk, whatever it is. They, they, are, they are growing through that feeding that they are receiving. Well, for the believer, not only does the, the word bring about the new life, but it also, it also is the nourisher or the feeder of that new life. It, it is what grows us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says, we must, the, the believer must desire the sincere milk of the word that they may grow thereby. Throughout history, believers have always understood the importance of the word of God. Martin Luther says, if you want to hear the voice of God, just start reading this book out loud. A lot of people like to say, well, uh, the Lord told me. 
the Lord told me, or I heard the Lord say, all that is ridiculous unless they followed up with saying, and I read it in such and such a book. Okay? People who want to hear the Lord say, I mean, that might be a taco they had last night speaking to them. That might be, uh, that might be actually Satan inv inviting their thought life, right? So God has spoken, and he has spoken, according to Hebrews, through his word. Even as young children, we sang this song. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you grow, grow, grow. That song echoes Jesus' words in John 17, 17, when he says, sanctify them. Dave has given us a lesson over these last couple of weeks and, and even handed out a chart about our sanctification graph and the, and the idea of, of our growing process throughout our lives. A, a Christian's going to have maybe these different styles of growth, but all Christians should be growing. Well, what is the secret to that growth? It is the Word of God. It is our intake, our meditation, our study, our obedience to that Word. Consider Joshua 1.8, which says, I will meditate on your word day and night, and then I will have good success. Or Psalm 1, which says, Do not stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful, or, uh, but delight in the law of God day and night, and you will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water whose leaf does not wither and bears fruit in its season. And so Psalm 119 is an ode to the beauty and the blessing of God's word. It is a feast of riches for the believer. William Wilberforce David Livingstone, great men of God, said they memorized this passage. In my Bible, it contains one, two, three, four. It's five, six, seven pages. And these believers loved God's Word so much and recognized its impact in their sanctification process, they committed it to memory. We're focusing today on Psalm 119, verses 105 to 112. And we're doing so for a special reason. Uh, this is not meant to embarrass anyone, uh, but when our kids uh, turn 13 years old, uh, we've, we've done a special thing with them. We take them out, just Lee and I and them, and we do a special activity, and we, we have a special talk as you're kind of entering teenage years, and we just want to keep that. Because when I was a youth pastor and I had young kids, uh, almost everyone seemed to want us to fail as parents. Because you would try, as I would, I, I would have teenage parents not teenage parents, I would have parents of teenagers who would come to me and, and desire counsel and advice, and I didn't have teenagers yet, and so it was all kind of, they, they, they didn't really, you'll understand type of thing when you get there. You, you don't really get it or understand. So we really wanted to strive to have a good relationship with our children, and it is on those days that I pick a scripture, and I give that scripture to that child kind of as a special bestowment upon them. And for Allie, who's leaving tomorrow for Guam, I gave her Psalm 119, verses 111 and 112, which says, Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. And so I wanted to preach this message this morning um, for all of us. And I want to preach on this theme, inheriting and inclining towards the word of God. You can see those words in those verses, inheriting and inclining towards the Word of God. You, know, you might not use those words very often. Maybe you want to use different words. Possessing and performing the Word of God or owning and obeying the Word of God. And so what I want to do this morning is talking about the what of these verses and then explain the why tonight. And tonight's lesson will be pretty brief. But 
there's something that the writer says in these two verses. He makes two very important statements. He makes one statement about inheriting the Word of God, and then he makes another statement about inclining to the Word of God. Or he makes one statement about possessing it, and one statement about performing it. So he says, what I want to do is possess and perform the Word of God. And, and that's the what of his statement. So, so then tonight we'll say, well, why would anyone want to do this? Why would anyone want to possess the Word of God? Why would anyone want to perform the Word of God? We'll, we'll look at that tonight. But let's talk a little bit about the what. What is he saying here? He wants to inherit the Scripture. He wants to incline towards the Scripture. Now first, if you're looking at the passage, verses 105 to 112, there are five or six, let's see, one, two, three, four, there are six different words that the writer uses just in these eight verses for the Word of God. Now, if you look at Psalm 119 in your Bible, it's a long section. Every eight verses, there is a new heading. It's a poetic uh, form of writing that every stanza begins with that Hebrew letter. It's a very uh, wonderfully put-together uh, portion of Scripture. And each eight verses have a kind of a different theme. This begins with, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. But there are six different terms for the word, what we would say, Bible. Let's just look at those real quickly. The first is in verse 105 and 107. Your word is a lamp to my feet. And then in 107, give me life according to your word. That word, word, don't get confused. The word, word, simply means the speech of God. The actual words that he says. The speech of God, according to verse number 105, is something that directs and guides us. The speech of God, according to verse 107, is something that gives life. When God made all things, it didn't take an explosion and millions of years for that life to emerge out of a murky swamp somewhere. It instantaneously came to life by his voice, by his word. It was his speech. Remember, think back to Genesis 1. And God said, let there be whatever. God said, let there be light, let there be creatures, let there be... Let it, he just speaks and it happens. His speech has the power to give life that's what the writer says here. It is his speech that he desires to give life. We already kind of talked about that. Then in verse 106 and 108, we have the second word that's used. It's the word rules. See, in 106, help me keep your righteous rules. And in 108, teach me your rules. That word just means a judgment or a decision. We've been watching old TV shows lately, and we were watching one last night. I already had this all written, but we were watching one last night where the mother and father were having a problem with the teenage person in the house, and, and they were breaking the rules. They kept using that word, and I was thinking about this word that's used here. And it is a word that means judgments or decisions, right? Who is it that sets the rules for your home? Is it the six-year-old in the house? that sets the rules, there's a person who is the, the judge maker, you might call it, the decision caster. In Genesis chapter 30, verse, or Genesis chapter 18, verse number 25, it says, the judge of all the earth. Isaiah 30, verse 18, says something very similar. God is a God of justice. It is God who sets the rules. Well, in this program last night, the, the mother said to the child, 
who is breaking the rules, you may not agree with the rules, but we are the one who sets the rules. You don't see that type of talk on TV very much, but, but 40 years ago you did. We set the rules and you will. And so when, when he says here, help me keep your rules, teach me your rules, God has the right and authority to make the demands by which our lives will be governed. And guess what? This might be news to us. It doesn't matter if we agree with those rules or not. It doesn't change the authority of those rules. We may want to rewrite, or culture may want to rewrite God's decisions and dictates, but these things do not change. They are verdicts and decisions. I think the King James used the word judgments. They are judgments that are made by God. And the writer says, I want to be taught those rules, verse 108, and I swear that I will keep those rules because you have made them and you are my judge and you are the authority. Verse number 109, third word is used. It's the word law. It's the Hebrew word Torah, which is a summary statement for the first five books of the Bible. It's a word that means instructions or directions. It's, it's talking really about the code of conduct. See verse 109? I hold my life in, I hold my, life in my hand continually, but I, but I do not forget your code. I do not forget your law. This law was revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai when he walks down with the Ten Commandments. These are the, these are the instructions and directions that God has given, and since that time, no man has been able to keep those laws. Christ has. He came and said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, and he perfected those things. In fact, he, he went and said, I only do the things that please my Father. He said, let me do this that we might fulfill all righteousness. He saw the code that God had placed, the instructions that God set forth, and he kept them perfectly in our place. This is what salvation is. Because these standards that God has set, all of us are like that teenage child in the house, have, have rebelled against the rules and law that God has set up. And because of that, we must be punished. And the punishment that God outlines in his word is separation. The punishment for sin is separation. A lot of us want to jump right to, well, the punishment for sin is hell. And that's true. But the punishment is separation. You see, because people who aren't saved now are already separated from God. They are already distant from him. They do not have a relationship with him. They do not have the peace that we've been discussing in Sunday school. They're separate from him. And upon death, that separation just becomes permanent. There is no recovery from it. Today, if you are separated from God, there is still the potential that you could be united to him in saving faith. That's wonderful gospel news. There's an old song called God's Final Call. I, I don't know if I necessarily agree with it, but there's a line in it that I really like. That, I don't know if it's that song or another one. Now that I'm mixing up my head, and forgive me for that, I didn't write it down, so I'm just going off the top of my head. But it says, in, in that day, there will never be a sermon preached for sinners. In heaven, there's certain things that will not happen. There will never be a gospel call in heaven. Because everyone who's there has responded to the gospel. By gospel call, I mean someone explaining the gospel and then say, now would anybody here in heaven like to receive Christ as Savior? I'll be looking around. We all did that. All the people that didn't do that have no opportunity for that now. And the joyous message of the gospel the message that grace must always proclaim in this community is that there is the potential for you 
whether it's you or anyone we know, there is the potential for you still to be united with God because Christ has fulfilled the law for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's this wonderful transfer that takes place when we put our faith and trust in Christ. His perfect righteousness, his complete fulfilling of the law becomes our own, and our sin, in a sense, becomes his. He pays the penalty for us. We simply believe by faith that he his death pays the penalty for our sins, and our sins are wiped out. They're forgiven. They're completely clean. And now we are united with God, and we have the hope of eternal life. Friend, if you have never received Christ as your Savior, could it be that this would be the final gospel call you would ever receive? Only the Lord knows. But to continue to reject that, Hebrews tells us, is a dangerous, dangerous thing because a person who continually rejects the gospel, the Bible says, is trampling underfoot the blood of Christ and one day will never have the chance to respond. In verse 110, a fourth word is used. It's the word precepts. You see it there. I do not stray from your precepts. A lot of these have just different nuances. It means regulations. It actually has the idea that God is paying attention to how he wants things ordered. You ever leave the house as parents and you make a list of what should be done when you're gone? Right? This, is, this is the way I want things done. This is the, these are my precepts for while I'm gone. A lot of times we strayed from those. Author says here, I don't want to stray from your regulations. A lot of times we like to stretch the law. Go as far as we can close to it. And maybe even overstep it a little bit. For instance, maybe we just make a rolling stop at a stop sign and just go right through that stop sign. Well, no one really knows. Just kind of teasing because Tony brought that up before. Well, it's 55, but we can go, you can go 65. You know, I'm just saying, we, just, we like to do that as humans. And, and what we need to do is what the psalmist says, do not let me stray from your regulations because Psalm 19.8 says, those who love God and his precepts realize that those things are what brings joy and pleasantness. And in fact, the opposite of those is to actually love and embrace evil. The two verses that I really want to focus on, verse 111 and 112, these are the two words that are used. The first word is testimonies. Testimonies. And the second word is statutes. A testimony, just like you would think of watching a courtroom show or something, a testimony is someone who bears witness to something. What did you see? Did you see that guy going to that bank and rob it? Oh, yes, I saw it. He was wearing blue jeans and whatever. And you give your testimony to what you saw. Well, the scripture are called the testimonies because it gives a testimony to who God is. It is the scripture that makes God and his way known to us. It makes the obligations of us and our privileges known. It is a testimony of all of his attributes, his wisdom, his power, his justice, his goodness, his truth. It is the idea of opening this book and finding out who God is. A testimony to him and all of his demands. And the writer says in verse 111 that those testimonies, those statements about God are his heritage. They are the joy of his heart. And then in verse 112, the last of these six words is the word statutes, which means an expectation or a mandate, a definite prescribed written law. This really helps us. This word helps us too because in Exodus chapter 5, most of you who, who know this story of Moses uh, and him uh, delivering the Egyptians out of their slavery. You remember that when they were in slavery in Egypt, they made these bricks 
out of, out of mud and straw. And when Moses came, uh, the Pharaoh got mad because these people were now starting to be inclined to, hey, we're going to get out of here. Maybe they weren't working as hard. And so remember they said, well, now you are going to gather your own straw, but you have to fulfill the same quota. Okay, you have to fulfill the same quota. I think the ESV used the word task. You have to fulfill the same task. In other words, if you had to do 100 bricks uh, before, you, you know, when we were giving you straw, you still have to do 100 bricks. That's your quota. And maybe, maybe you have worked in a place where you have a quota. You have a, you have a, a task that must be reached and must be met. That's exactly what this word statutes means. It means there is, a, there is a standard or a quota or a task that must be reached. It is a binding legislation that must be observed because a ruler has set it forth. Okay? The Bible tells us in verse 112 that the author says, I incline my heart to do your quota, to do your task, to do it forever to the end. All these words, right? Word, law, uh, rules, precepts, testimonies, statutes, gives us this kind of full picture. And all of this sounds like what you might hear in church. God has all these rules for us to follow, right? And it's kind of what you typically think about when you think of church. You know, like we have this angry, demanding being who, is, who just puts all of these weighty demands upon us and says, fulfill it or else. Right? I've heard a lot of people complain you know, that that's what church is. Church is just you know, telling us what we should and should not do. When you read, when you read 105 to 112, we're going to talk about the whys tonight in verse 105 to 110. But do you get any sort of that emotion from the writer? Even when we read earlier from someone, do you, you get any of this bitterness or, boy, God is such a mean, angry God. Look at especially the last two verses again. Your testimonies are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Towards the end here, towards the end of this section, we get to what the psalmist really is stating about his attitudes towards the Word. It is, it is inheriting and inclining, or better yet, I'm going to use the words possessing and performing. So we have two thoughts we're going to make, and then we're going to be done for today. Possessing and performing. So let's start with this. Number one, possessing. In the King James version of the Bible, maybe you're carrying that today, in verse 111, it, it says it a little differently. Here's what the ESV says. Your testimonies are my heritage. Well, in the King James, it says, I have taken your testimonies as my heritage. You, see, you hear the difference? Listen to it again. This says, your testimonies are my heritage. King James says, I have taken. There's a little more in the King James, the idea of a, of a decision that is being made to actually possess the Scripture. And I think that's right. Because the word heritage in verse 11 actually means to take as our possession. Now think about it this way. I said earlier that the testimony, that word testimonies in verse 111, means an excellent explanation or an announcement, just, just like in a courtroom, a, a, a revelation of who God is and what he has done and what he demands. Now who 
has access to that testimony today. A greater part of the world, right? Now, we're sending out missionaries to give people access to these testimonies in their own language who do not have it yet. But the, a majority of the world, I mean, there, there are a lot of dialects and, and a lot of small people groups that don't have the Bible, but, but most major speaking groups, English, Spanish, French, Chinese, etc., have the Bible in their own language, correct? So are the testimonies and the revelation of God available to those people? Answer yes or no. Yes. Do they then possess it? Answer yes or no. We don't know. We don't know. Because the possession is made by choice. According to that verse, I have taken, even the word, it's not seen in the ESV, but when it says your testimonies are my heritage, in that Hebrew word, the idea is, is to be taken or to be possessed. Okay? To be owned. And it is owned by a decision that is made. When you choose to follow God in faith, Part of the possession that you receive is, just like Bridges said, I quoted at the beginning, the precious Bible, what a treasure. The psalmist says, I choose that as my inheritance. I make a decision to possess it. I want to own the testimonies of God. I'm not saying I want to own a Bible, right? I want to purchase a Bible, and now I own it. But I want to make it my own. See the difference? I want to make it my own. I want to possess it by choice. Everybody, I mean, I would say a majority of people in America own a Bible. Have several of them. They download them on their phones. They, they have it in their, in their possession. But they have not, I like the phrase, made it their own. They have not rested their faith fully upon it and owned it as their heritage. And the beautiful part of this heritage, according to verse 11, is it lasts how long? What's the word in the Bible? Everybody say it. What's, how long does this heritage last? I've taken them as my heritage forever. Forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8, also quoted in Peter in the New Testament, says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You ever watch those shows on the History Channel where the guys go into barns and buy all kinds of old, rusted-up junk? You know, and they find old Corvettes, 1964. Imagine when that rolled off the line, the proud guy who bought that, you know, laid down his... $600 for a brand new Corvette and was like, this is, our, oh, this is the best thing. Now it's a piece of junk. You know what Scripture tells us? Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where that stuff doesn't happen. Everything that is worked for and chosen for a heritage by the majority of unbelievers today is something that will fade and pass away and will no longer retain its value. But the heritage of the testimony, the revelation of God, the understanding of who He is and what He desires is something that will last forever. This spiritual heritage is what the writer says, I want to own that. I want to possess that. I want that to be mine because it will never pass away, Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth may pass away, but the words of God will never pass away. And really, the word of God is really part of God. None of you are going to go home today and phrase your experience this morning like this. Um, like you're, you're riding, home, riding home together with whoever you came with or whatever. We, we might use this phrase, but more generally... you. You probably wouldn't say, well, I really listened to Andy's words today. And, and his words were really, you know, you would say, I really listened to him. Because my words are me. 
Does that make sense? You, 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 when you listen to the words of someone else, you, you are listening to them. Their words are them. And I've tried to say this before. Maybe I haven't said it very well, but the Bible really, in a sense, is God. It, it is, it, this is Him. You, you cannot say, in other words, you cannot say, I, I love, I love God so much. Right. Now His Word, you can't make that disconnection. So when He says, your testimonies are my heritage forever, He's really saying, God, you yourself are my heritage. And part of the reason He desires this testimony for His own is because of the great joy that it brings Him. Joy is a great word here. It just means jubilation. Yesterday, two soccer teams played at uh, the big house in Ann Arbor, and everybody's going crazy about this, right? The, the score a goal, this jubilee. Ever hear a soccer announcer say goal? It sounds like he's losing his mind. Just says it for like half an hour. This jubilation in the stadium. The idea of possessing and owning the testimonies of God as our heritage, which according to Jeremiah 7, verse 34, and Joel 1 and 12, those two verses, Jeremiah 7, 34, Joel 1, 12, they both say that joy is removed from a people that is rebellious. So joy is granted to those who treasure and own the Scripture. The psalmist has taken for his possession and for his heritage the testimony of God, which is his joy. Now, I try, to, I try to break things down as simple as I can. So I've said our two main thoughts here today are we, we want to possess it and we want to perform it. And, and let me add this to it. We can say we want to own it and we want to obey it. And by own, again, I, I clarified what I meant by that. And possess means it is our delight. And perform means it is our duty. Okay? So, I mean, that's as simple as I can make it. Those of us who have owned God's Word, we have, we have built our faith and life upon it. We have taken it by decision as our inheritance. Would you say that that has brought you joy? No question. No question. Psalm 119, verse 77, Your law is my delight. Jeremiah 15, 16, Your words are a joy and delight in my heart. Notice that the writer, look real carefully at the words, the writer does not say, Your testimonies bring joy. It says, your testimonies are joy. There is no other joy in this life but the joy of God's law. Let others seek for their joy elsewhere and take for themselves a heritage that will fade and pass away. But for us, let us possess the testimonies of God or die with sorrow. God's law is our life and joy. Second. So he possesses it, and now he says, I'm going to perform it. We'll get done with this quickly, I promise. Perform it. So here's, here's another simple way of saying it, okay? Let us not only decide to possess God's Word, but let us determine to perform it. You got that? Let us not only decide to possess it or decide to own it, but let us determine to perform it or determine to obey it. One writer says at the end of this verse, verse 112, what you have here is a fierce determination. It doesn't sound like that way because we don't use this word incline very often. The only time we use it maybe is, because uh, incline, it kind of sounds like recline. It kind of sounds like a relaxing word. And going up a hill on a biker, that's not a, an incline, it's not a fun thing. 
But this word doesn't have anything to do with that. It, it means to stretch or bend or extend ourselves. That's a, that's a great word. To stretch towards. Think about it. it. It is the idea of moving and bending our heart to the obedience of the Word of God. In fact, in Psalm 125, verse 5, it is used to people who stretch towards wickedness. And really, we have that choice to make. It takes faith in the Word of God to possess it. And then we determine to follow God's Word and perform it. The ownership or the possession, the heritage, the inheriting of God's Word means nothing without the inclination towards it. Because everybody can say, oh, how I love this book. Oh, I, I take its testimonies as my own. I possess it. I, this is my life. And then you look at their life and there's no obedience. James 2 says that kind of faith is dead. Right? And it, it would be like me telling you how much I like uh, downhill skiing. And you're not going to find any equipment or ski lift tickets at my house. But I love it so much. Oh, man, I live or die with the slopes, baby. Have you ever been? No, I've only been one time and I almost hit a tree and I hated it, so I haven't done it ever again. That's what so many people are doing. This first part, oh, God's Word. Oh, what a blessing. Oh, I love God's Word. And, and there's, no, there's no consistent obedience. There's no stretching, bending towards performing it. That, that, that finishing of the verse, I incline my heart, I bend it, I stretch it to perform your statutes. What's really, really fascinating about this is that is impossible for you to do. That is impossible for you to do. Here he says, I incline, well, why is he saying this? Well, if you look back, you don't have to, but if you looked back in verse number 36 of this same chapter, so it's only a page or two back, so maybe we should. Verse number 36, same chapter. It says this, incline my heart to your testimonies. So there he's saying it in the form of a prayer. God, will you make my heart to bend towards your word? Because I'm so prone to want to do my own thing. So God, you have to work in my life to do that. And when you do, I will follow that. It's just like what Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says. It is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. In other words, it is God who gives us the desire to obey, and then he also gives us the determination to do that. To, to incline your heart to perform the statutes of God requires that you depend on God for that willingness and desire to do so. And again, this is not a half-heartedness, but a fierce determination. See how it finishes? I incline my heart to perform your statutes. Look at this. Forever to the end. It sounds like he's kind of being redundant, right? Forever and to the end. What he's basically saying is, I am going to bring this to its completion. This is not a temporary and fleeting thought, but it is the purpose of my existence. I want to finish the process. I incline my heart in that direction, and I fully intend to carry this to the end. Verse 33 of the same chapter, I will keep your law to the end. Verse 44, same chapter, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. Now this is the what of the passage. This is the what of the passage. He says, I'm going to inherit your testimonies and I'm going to incline my heart to perform your statutes. Now I'm really tempted right now to just finish this 
but then I won't have anything to say tonight. But I'm going to finish it, okay? Because it's only 25 after, and I want to I want to explain why the writer. I won't. I don't know what I'm going to do tonight now, but we're going to just talk about this right now. Because I think it's important for us to understand the why of why why in the world would someone want to own and obey the scriptures so much? Well, the rest of the passage tells us, and there's a reason in every verse, and I'll give it to you quickly. Look at verse 105. Why would a person want to do this? First, because the Word is what shows us how to please God. The Word is what shows us how to please God. It's a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. A lamp would be needed at night. A light would be needed during the day. So God's Word is used at all times to guide and direct our path. This is not the decreed will of God, who will marry, where we'll work, where we'll live, but it is the declared will of God. The scripture is what gives our feet direction. It tells us what type of person we should be, what our character should be like. It tells us what priorities we should have, what should be our concerns. It tells us what practices we should keep, our commands. Do you want to know what God expects of you? What he wants you to be as a husband, as a father, as a human being, as a, as a wife, as a mother, as a child, as a student? Do you want to know what he demands? Then all you need to know is the word of God. The scripture tells us how our thinking should be governed and then where our steps should take us. There is nothing in this world that provides illumination. You can walk into Barnes & Noble. You can go to Amazon.com and research every book there is. It's all nonsense compared to the direction that Scripture gives, right? Walk through, walk through, I mean, the greatest question known to man is this, how can I please God? And no book will tell you that except for the Scripture. Hebrews 11, 6, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 and 2, 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 9. Second, the Word of God teaches us about righteous behavior. This is what verse 106 says. It teaches us about righteous rules. God has given us his verdicts on moral issues. And as I said, even though culture wants to uh, kind of redact or redefine them, there has been no software update to the scripture. There is no new download patch. Right? You've got to get Bible 2.0. And God has re-updated his standards for the world because he kind of sees that he was wrong about a few things. His rules are the same. His verdicts are unchanging. He has not reconsidered. So if you want to know what they are, read and study his word. This is how you understand what righteous behavior is and what evil behavior is. That is the only way you can swear to keep it. Third, the word of God gives us perspective on suffering. See the passage, 107? I am severely afflicted. When you decide to possess and own the scripture, and when you decide to perform and obey it, you know what happens in the world? The world doesn't go and encourage and support and, and just provide all the help you need at that moment. Now you are running in complete friction with the world. You have, you have now set yourself up against the world system, and you will come at and against them at every turn, and there will be affliction. Job, Paul, the apostles, and especially our Lord, not to mention all of history's figures, Hebrews 11 says, some were sawn in half, torn up by lions. 
You know, the world does not respond well to this. Serving God does not screen us from trial, Spurgeon said. And so when that happens, how are we to make sense of it? Well, 107 says, I am severely afflicted. Give me life according to your word. Renew me. It is, it is, it is the word of God, the presence and power of his word that is the antidote for the believer in trial. It gives life and strength and blessing because you can go to the word and understand what that suffering is and what is meant to come out of it. 2 Corinthians 4.17 The light afflictions are not worthy to be compared with the eternal weight of glory. And it is those promises that give life and hope. Number four. We'll combine verses 109 and 110, which talk about dangers and enemies. See it? I hold my life in my hand continually. It's like he's saying, he's saying you know, I, I'm, I'm near death all the time. The wicked are after me, and there is a snare. But I do not forget your law. It is not something that, that is lost to my memory. And I do not stray from your precepts. I do not wander away from your commands. So... The, the fourth thing we could say is the Word of God gives determination in the face of resistance. Whether it's enemies, physical ailments, struggles that we endure, it is the Scripture that anchors us to the reality of the truth of God. This is why, and we rush through those a little bit, but this is why the writer says, I take your testimonies as my own and I incline my heart to obey them because the Word is what gives life. The Word is what teaches me about you. The Word is what demonstrates what is right. The Word is what protects me in suffering. The Word is what directs me during dangers and enemies. It is the Word of God. I go back to that uh, idea of sanctification. It is God's Word that is the breeder and the feeder of the Christian life. And any straying or any departing of it you will then find yourself in danger. So own it and obey it. Father, we are so glad today to think upon this passage and to be blessed with 